Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let out your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. Lord, help us to recognize Jesus for who he is. Lord, help us to have the right response to Jesus. We pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning, who are unbelievers, who have never come to saving faith. We pray that you would empower these words. Lord, help them to see Jesus and to repent and turn to him in faith. And Lord, we praise you that, that we who are here as believers this morning, as those who have turned from their sin and are trusting in Jesus, help us also to see Jesus. Help us to see Jesus afresh. Lord, like we did when we first saw him, when we first came to saving faith. And help us to respond accordingly, to rejoice. And help us all, Lord, to become fishers of men for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet had a vision. He was somehow able to see the Holy of Holies. And not just the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple, but the ultimate Holy of Holies in heaven, of which the temple on earth is simply a copy. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He sees the train of the, the Lord's the, uh, sitting, he sees the train of the Lord's robe filling the temple. He sees the, the seraphim standing above. And even these seraphim with, two, with their wings, they're covering their mouths and they're covering their feet. They're conscious that they are in the presence of the Holy One who is upon the throne. And the seraphim call out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
The very foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah understands the one in whose presence he is. He realizes that God is holy and he is not. He's terrified and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But Isaiah is offered rescue. As one of the seraphim flies to him with a burning coal that is taken from the altar and anoints Isaiah's lips with the coal. He touches Isaiah's mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And only then does Isaiah hear the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah commits to wholehearted service saying, Here I am, send me. And the Lord commissions him saying, Go. Isaiah 6 provides a paradigm of response, the proper response to the holy. One that's reflected in the response that we're going to see from Peter this morning in Luke chapter 5, 1 to 11. As Peter responds to Jesus, as Jesus again demonstrates his authority and his power in the proclamation of the word and through miracles. But before Jesus, before Luke shows us the right response to Jesus from Peter, he has shown us the wrong response of the crowds in Nazareth and in Capernaum. The people in Nazareth and Capernaum had initially responded positively to Jesus by marveling at his word and power, but they ultimately rejected him. The crowds in Nazareth rejected Jesus by trying to kill him. The crowds in Capernaum rejected Jesus by trying to control him. But true disciples demonstrate that they have received Jesus by repenting, by submitting, by following, and serving him. Jesus has already demonstrated his authority over demons and over diseases. And now, through the power of the Spirit, he continues to demonstrate his authority over the sea and all that it contains. But that's not all. In this passage, Jesus continues to show his authority by demonstrating his authority even over sinners. Luke is showing us the right response to Jesus. Peter's response is contrasted with that of those in the crowds in Capernaum and in Nazareth. Peter, like Isaiah, is the recipient of God's grace. And the responses of both men are remarkably similar. We see in both a recognition of who the Lord is. We see in both repentance at who the Lord is. We see rescue because of who the Lord is. And we see release because of who the Lord is. And those will form the, the four points for this message this morning. So first of all, the recognition of who the Lord is. Our passage begins similarly to what we've seen already. Once again, Jesus is preaching the word of God, the good news of the kingdom. He is again showing his authority to proclaim the word. But this time it's not in the synagogue, and this time it's not the Sabbath. He's by the lake of Gennesaret, named for the fertile plain that was on the lake's western shore. Jesus has not traveled very far from Capernaum. The Sea of Gennesaret is the Sea of Galilee, the freshwater body of water in the northern part of Israel. 
that figures so prominently in the Gospels. It's a very large lake. It's, it's 21 kilometers long and at its widest point, 13 kilometers wide, but still it's only about half the area of Okanagan Lake. A crowd is gathered. Jesus' reputation has preceded him. They press in to hear him preach the word of God. And Jesus here sees two boats by the lake, fishing boats. Now, at that time, fishing boats were about six to nine meters long. And it's amazing that in the drought of, of 1986, when the water in the Sea of Galilee receded, there was a remarkably well-preserved fishing boat discovered on the northwest shore in exactly the same region that Jesus was ministering. This is an amazing example of God's providence. He was pre preparing this and preserving this in order that we would be able to have a, a glimpse of what a fishing boat would have looked like during the time that Jesus ministered. But back then, back in the time that Jesus was ministering, the, these fishermen were on the shore washing their nets. Now then, after the night's fishing trip, the nets were to be cleaned and they were to be, be repaired, checked for holes. But now climbing into one of the boats, which we are told belongs to Simon, Jesus asks to go out a little bit from the shore. The water would provide a natural amphitheater for Jesus to continue to proclaim his message. Maybe if you've noticed, if you ever visited a, a smaller lake and you, you can really remarkably hear people across the lake speaking in, in normal voices, you can hear them quite clearly. And, and Jesus knew this, and so he went out to be able to speak to the crowds. But Jesus' target audience is not on the shore. His target audience is right there in the boat with him. Jesus knew full well whose boat he was choosing and why. We've already heard Simon's name. Simon is Simon Peter. It was the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law by Jesus that we saw last week in, in the Capernaum. Now, although it's possible that Luke's, Luke is, is narrating the, the, a second calling of Peter, it seems that Luke has, has reorganized the narratives in different order from Matthew and Mark. Jesus sat down on the boat and began to preach. Alfred Plummer wrote that Christ uses Peter's boat as a pulpit, whence to throw the net of the gospel over his hearers. When Jesus finished his sermon, he said to, to Peter, to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus is telling Peter to take, out the take the boat out deeper, but in the original language, it's clear that let down your nets is plural. Jesus is speaking to the others in the boat as well. Presumably James and John, who will be introduced to in a few moments. The crowd that had gathered and pressed in to hear Jesus preach was quickly faded into the background. They don't even picture in the rest of the passage. It was Peter, along with his partners, James and John, that Jesus was preaching to. So at this, at this suggestion to go out deeper and cast in the nets, Simon answers, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Jesus' instruction does not make any sense to Peter. Like Mary at the announcement of the angel in 134 that, that, she would be, be, that she would conceive in the womb from the Holy Spirit, Peter is incredulous. He and his partners have worked all night. Remember, these are seasoned finish fishermen. They've caught nothing all night. If they couldn't catch anything all night, what would be the point of going out now? 
But furthermore, the nets that, that are spoken of here are likely trammel nets. They were used for fishing in deep water and for fishing at night because they were made of linen and would have been visible by fish during the day. But nonetheless, Peter's incredulity gives way to obedience. Peter submits. The fact that he refers to Jesus as his master is not just a term of respect. It implies that though he is the captain of the boat, he is relinquishing control to Jesus. He says, at your word, I will let down the nets. Again, we're seeing submission at, to the authority of Jesus' word. I wonder who's driving your boat? Are you submitted to the authority of Jesus' word? Are you submitted to the authority of all of Jesus' word? Or are there parts of Jesus' word that you are holding back, that you're reserving? Are there any parts of Scripture that you are unsubmissive to in either belief or in action? We must submit to all of Jesus' word, even if it doesn't make sense to us. The fish submit to Jesus. Verses 6 and 7. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They singled, signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began, began to sink. They've caught so many fish that the, the boats are laying heavy in the water. Jesus has demonstrated his authority over demons and over disease, and now he demonstrates his authority over the sea and all that is in it. Now, we're not told how many fish there, there were here, but remember, these are two good-sized boats, almost 30 feet long. And they were sinking with so many fish. There must have been thousands of fish in those boats. Jesus has directed them into the nets. Jesus has authority over all of his creation. He is the one who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Psalm 146, verse 6. O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. Psalm 104, verses 25 and 26. The Lord Jesus sustains the seas and all that is in them with the word of his power. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Jesus owns the fish. They exist to bring him glory. Now it's really interesting that there's a very similar miracle that takes place three years later towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. After the resurrection, when Peter and the disciples are back fishing, again the disciples toil all night without catching anything. And again, Jesus comes to them and tells them to let down their nets. Again, there's a miraculous catch. Again, Peter figures prominently. Now, liberal theologians claim that, that, that John, in, in John chapter 21, and, and Luke here in Luke chapter 5, are speaking uh, about the same event. But there are details in both events that makes it very clear that they are distinct. This has happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and happens again at the end of Jesus' ministry. Here, Luke is describing Peter's call to discipleship. But in John, Peter has, Peter has renounced his discipleship, but he is about to be reinstated by Jesus. 
Now I think R.C. Ryle is making, J.C. Ryle rather, is making a play on words when he says that there's a deep spiritual lesson below the surface. There's a deep spiritual lesson below the surface. This is not just about fish, as we'll see shortly. Again, the crowds aren't even mentioned. The crowds aren't even mentioned. There will be crowds later on as the disciples go and minister to them, but right now the focus of Jesus is on Peter, James, and John. The crowds appreciated Jesus' teaching earlier, but it seems that like the crowds in Nazareth and like the crowds in Capernaum, they did not appreciate Jesus. They did not seem to recognize who had been in their midst. This miracle is for Peter, James, and John who are beginning to realize who Jesus is. Now their understanding is going to unfold as the Gospel of Luke progresses. In Luke chapter 9 that Vince read for us earlier, verse 20, Jesus will ask them, who do you say that I am? And Peter will reply, the Christ of God. But in Luke's Gospel account, it's not until the end of Luke, in fact, the, very, the second last verse of Luke's gospel account where we clearly see the disciples' recognition of who Jesus is. In Luke 24, 52, they worshipped him. The only place where it says in all of Luke's gospel that directly they worshipped Jesus is in the second last verse. But like Isaiah, Peter recognizes and is confronted with the holiness of God. And holiness necessitates a response. Do you, like them, recognize Jesus? Do you recognize the Lord? Let's now see in, in verse 8, repentance at who Jesus is. When Peter realizes who is in the boat, he's not concerned about full nets or sinking boats. Peter realizes that he is sinking he falls to the deck at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter is experiencing holy dread, much like what was felt by Isaiah in the presence of the holy. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6, 5. It's a response that we see regularly in the scriptures. It's the response of the people of Israel after the Lord has delivered the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. It's the response of Manoah, of Manoah Samson's father, when the angel of the Lord appears to him and his wife. We will surely die, for we have seen God. Judges 13. It's the response of Job when the Lord answers him out of the whirlwind in, in Job 42, verses 5 and 6. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Jesus' holy presence makes Peter aware of his sinfulness. When Peter says, Depart from me. He's not rejecting Jesus. It's similar to Peter's response in John 13 when, when Jesus is about to wash Peter's feet and Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Unlike the crowd in Nazareth who tried to kill Jesus, unlike the crowd in Capernaum who tried to lay solitary claim on Jesus for their own benefit, Peter makes no such claim. When Peter sees Jesus, he sees himself accurately, deeming himself unworthy to be in Jesus' presence. Peter isn't rejecting Jesus. Peter is falling on his knees in repentance. But notice now, instead of referring to Jesus as master, Peter refers to him as Lord. Lord says more than master. Later, Peter will understand even more fully what that name means. But, but again, from Albert, Alfred Plummer, it's the master who order, whose orders must be obeyed. But the Lord whose holiness caused moral agony to the sinner. Peter recognizes Jesus' authority and recognizes the fact that God is working through him. And again, throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, as Peter walks with Jesus, that, uh, that understanding is going to grow and unfold. Peter knew that he was sinful, but he had no idea just how sinful he was. But Jesus knew. Three years later, during Jesus' most agonizing trial, Peter would depart from Jesus. But even still, knowing that, Jesus still called Peter. In John chapter 20, 21, the incident I mentioned a few moments ago, the other miraculous catch, when Jesus reinstates Peter, we see clearly that, that Jesus will never leave his chosen ones. God is faithful. He will never leave his people. Aren't you thankful that Peter's in the Bible? When I see Peter, I see myself. I see my failures. I see my sins. I see my weaknesses, my shortcomings. But that's not all I see. When I see Peter, I see God's grace and God's mercy. I see God's faithfulness and God's forgiveness. You are sinful men and women. I am a sinful man. Like Peter, none of us realize how sinful we, are really, we really are. But God knows. But God knows. And yet he still calls you to repentance and faith. Do you recognize that you are sinful? Do you recognize your sinfulness? Do you recognize your sinfulness even now? Not just talking about your sinfulness in the past, but the sinfulness that, that you still grapple with. Like Peter, you are in the presence of the Holy God. God is not just omniscient. He's omnipresent. Even though you can't see him, he sees you all the time. Even when you think that you're alone, God sees you. Even when you think that you're alone with your thoughts, God sees you. God is everywhere and God is every when. Let that sink for a moment. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, God sees you. God is with you. He is present with you. 
It's a terrifying thought for the unbeliever to be the presence of the holy God. But as Christians, we also ought to have and to cultivate a holy fear of God. Because if you are a Christian, you are even more in the presence of God than Peter was prior to Pentecost. God the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You take God with you wherever you go. May we all understand what it means in a deeper way that we dwell in the presence of the Holy God and that the Holy God dwells in us. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. Peter was right to be afraid. But Peter shows us the right response to God and the right response to sin. But it wasn't just Peter. There were others in the boat. Verse 9 tells us that they were all astonished at the catch of fish. Again, we see amazement at Jesus, but again, amazement at Jesus Jesus is not enough. Now, we don't know what happened to the rest of those men. But two more men are singled out for us in verse 10a. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, although we're not told here explicitly, it it appears that James and John responded similarly. James and John are are those who are, are singled out as partners with Peter. Now, it's interesting, in the original, it it implies that those, that there were those who had a part with Peter. And I think this is signaling that they had a part, not just with Peter's business, but they had a part with Peter's new business, that of discipleship. And that's going to become clear in a moment that they too have become disciples. But again, what is your response to Jesus? What is your response to your sin? Do you recognize that Jesus is holy and you are not? Do you you recoil from your sin or do you recoil from Jesus? There's really only two responses. May the Lord impress his holiness upon all of our hearts more deeply. May he help us, like Peter, to fall at Jesus' knees in repentance and faith. May he help us, like Peter, James, and John, to repent, to become disciples. Like Isaiah, Peter sees his sinfulness in the light of holiness. Like Isaiah, Peter sees that he is in mortal danger. Like Isaiah, Peter repents. Have you, like Isaiah and like Peter, repented? Next, let's let's see that we have rescue because of who Jesus is in verse 10b. So we've looked at at Peter's response to Jesus. Now let's look at Jesus' response to Peter. We saw before how Jesus responded to the the crowds in Nazareth. They tried to kill him, and he performed his first miracle, slipping away from them, away from their clutches, and away from what would have been certain death. We also saw his response to the rejection of the crowds at, at Capernaum, who tried to keep him there. He just left. But how does Jesus respond to Peter? How does Jesus respond to the man or woman who is repentant? Jesus doesn't come down heavy on Peter. 
Listing his past sin or his present sin or his, first, or his future sin. Jesus does, Jesus does not threaten Peter with fire and brimstone. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't preach to people with fire and brimstone. I think in our culture it's very important that we talk to people about hell. Because people in our culture have, have forgotten, intentionally, willfully forgotten, but they have forgotten the holiness of God. They've forgotten the justice of God. They've forgotten that sin, even their sin, requires infinite punishment because every sin they commit is against the infinitely holy God. So yes, we preach hell. But Peter's already repentant. Peter already knows about hell. Peter already knows that he deserved to be in hell. And even though the New Testament develops the doctrine of hell and judgment more fully than the Old Testament, there is more than enough in the Old Testament for Peter to understand that he deserves judgment from God and eternal punishment from God. And so as one who is walking in repentance, Peter is the recipient of God's Grace. Jesus offers grace. Now you need to understand that repentance is also a gift from God. The scriptures teach us that, that you cannot repent apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's, it's viewed as in 2 Timothy 2.25 as a gift of God. Likewise, faith is a gift from God. They, they come to us from the Holy God. That's Ephesians um, 2, 8 and 9, that they come to us as the gift. Everything that is required for your salvation, the repentance and faith in Jesus, comes to you as a gift from God. And as one in whose heart the Holy Spirit has been working, Peter now receives grace. He receives grace. It says in verse 10 to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. This is remarkable. Don't let your familiarity with this event lessen its magnitude. Jesus, the holy, righteous, incarnate God, is here before an unholy, sinful man, and he's comforting him. He's offering him grace and mercy. He's offering him forgiveness. Jesus didn't just enable Peter to catch fish. Jesus caught Peter. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter has been saved. Don't let your familiarity with your own experience of God's forgiveness in your life lessen its magnitude. Stop and think for a moment. Think about that moment when you first knew God's forgiveness. Jesus came to bring liberty. He came to release the captives. He came to release the oppressed. Luke 4.18 Jesus did not just come to, to release you from your sinful acts. Jesus came to release you from your sinful heart. Think about it. When you first came to faith in Jesus, when you first knew the forgiveness I remember when I was first saved, and many of you know my, my story. I was saved in a psychiatric hospital. When I got out of there, when I, when I had, had experienced in that hospital watching a televangelist, when I experienced 
the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. He healed my mind. He took away my desire for drugs. I wasn't looking for release from those things. I was looking for forgiveness. God gave me forgiveness, and that was enough so that when I went back to my, my parents' place uh, after coming to faith and was, was, when I was released from, the, released from the hospital, I was literally rolling in the grass with joy. The, the burden of my sin had been lifted. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you really need to read that book. But, but when, when, when Christian is, is walking through the, through the land, heading towards the celestial city, he's carrying a heavy burden on his back. And as he progresses, the, the burden gets bigger. As he, not that he wasn't carrying that big of a burden, but he realizes the extent of his burden as he, as he gets closer to the celestial city. But then when he comes to the foot of the cross, the burden rolls off his back and rolls into the tomb, never to be seen again. Now, if you are here this morning as a Christian, your burden has been rolled off your back. It has been rolled into the tomb, never to be seen again. Think of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." But brothers and sisters, God's grace isn't just for something back then. God's grace is for something today. Do you know God's grace today? May that grace appear to you just as precious now as it did then. Peter was sinking in the knowledge of his sin, but Jesus rescued him because that's who Jesus is. He is the visible manifestation of all of God's attributes. His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His mercy, His love, His grace, His faithfulness. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 and 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you seen the face of Jesus Christ? Strive by God's grace and the power of His Spirit to keep the depths of the riches of the mercy of God right in front of your eyes, always. But forgiveness is not the only thing that Jesus experiences when He experiences rescue. Jesus does not just offer Peter forgiveness, but usefulness. He says to Peter, from now on, you will be catching men. Now, catching men is literally catching men alive. And as we're going to see often in Luke's gospel account, Jesus' miracles serve as a parable to point to who Jesus is, what he's doing, and how one ought to respond. Richard Bauckham explains that the catch of fish was a metaphor for the rich harvest of souls into the kingdom through the ministry of these men, particularly Peter. And when we get to the book of Acts, we're going to see powerfully how these men became fishers of men. Think about in the, the, 
on the day of Pentecost when, when 3,000 souls are bought into, brought into the kingdom through Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and about 5,000 more in, on Simon's port, Solomon's portico on, in Acts chapter 4. Then it will be the Holy Spirit bringing men into the boat just as he brought these men into the boat of salvation. Again, these miracles were being done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Anytime anyone comes to saving faith, it is a miracle, a miracle of regeneration as the Holy Spirit takes out a heart of rebellion and replaces it with a heart of worship. And praise God, many here have been recipients of that miracle. From now on, everything is going to change. Again, this is not just Peter. From the response in verse 11, it's clear that James and John are implied here as well. They also have been rescued, and they're going to go out and rescue others. They're going to join Jesus in his vocation. No longer will they be fishermen, but fishers of men. They're going to be bringing people into the kingdom of God through relationship in, with Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you a man catcher? Jesus saved you by his grace. And he saved you to proclaim that grace to others. And I don't want to press the metaphor too far, but, but maybe you've labored hard and caught nothing. Maybe you haven't labored much at all. Jesus is telling you to let down the net. Maybe you feel powerless, but you aren't. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You have been entrusted with the treasure of the gospel. Do not hoard that treasure for yourself, but share the gospel with others. Share Jesus with others. Tell as many as who will listen of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Like Isaiah, Peter and the other disciples are rescued from sin and they're being called to rescue others. Again, have, have you been rescued from sin? If so, what are you doing to rescue others? Well, finally, in verse 11, we'll see release because of who Jesus is. Jesus didn't come just to bring rescue, but he also came to bring release. Release from everything that is holding us back from following him. Look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus has set them free from one path to follow another. They leave their boats and not just the boats, but they leave this miraculous catch. This, this would have been a, a huge payload for them. A massive payday, but they don't care about that stuff anymore. They leave it all and follow Jesus. In Nazareth and Capernaum, the crowds were amazed at Jesus, but rejected him. Peter, James, and John were amazed at Jesus and followed him. We're going to see this contrasted again with the response of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, as we, we're going to look at, the, at that next week as we continue in Luke chapter 5. 
Again, these men left the greatest catch that they had ever received, probably many months worth of fish in one catch. But this catch was not important as, as what they were to do to follow Jesus. And so they became disciples. Joel Green says the discipleship demands that one no longer be a slave to wealth or to cling to possessions as though they were one's source of security or social position. And that one give precedence to the family of God and especially to those in need. Turn with me in your Bible for a moment to Luke chapter 18. I'm sure you know this narrative quite well also. Verses 18 and following, we see, we see the rich young ruler. And this, this man comes to Jesus saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. So this, this man ostensibly wants to be saved. But Jesus cuts through all of that and he says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus continues, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness on your father and mother. And these, this man says, all these I have kept for my youth. This man had no idea what the commandments really entail. This man had no idea, unlike Peter, how much of a sinner he really was. But when Jesus said this, heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Now, there are all kinds of, of situations where Jesus deals with possessions in the Gospels. We'll see quite a few, even, even just in the Gospel of Luke. But this is the only place where someone is told to sell everything and follow Jesus. What Jesus was doing here was revealing that for this man, his wealth was his idol. He was claimed to have kept the commandments, but he hadn't even kept the first commandment. This man was, was, had, he said he wanted eternal life. He had God the Son incarnate before him. But he wouldn't let go of his treasure to lay hold of Jesus. Are you willing to let go of everything to follow Jesus? What is it in your life that is holding you back from following Jesus. Maybe there are some here this morning who are not willing to, to turn to him at all because they're afraid of what they might lose. We're told he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's a quote from Jim Elliott who gave up his life in the context of ministry to the Aka Indians in Central America. Jesus is telling us not just to lay down our possessions, but to lay down our lives and take up the cross and follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a true disciple. Think of the example we, we read about in, in Hebrews 11, about the, the, the Hebrews Hall of Faith with this example of, of so many godly men and women who served God and for many at the expense even of their lives. That leads into Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews doesn't just say here to, to lay down sin, which we have to lay down, but also to lay down every weight, things that are holding you back from wholehearted pursuit of Jesus. When you consider the things that you have in this life that, that, that you are, are putting above Jesus, when you, when you see them as hindrances, it really becomes no hardship to let them go. When you understand the, the treasure that you have in Christ, you gladly let go of anything that hinders you in your walk. Martin Luther in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, says, Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The things of this life are, are temporary. They're transient. But heaven, being with Jesus for all eternity, this is the greatest treasure. Jesus is the greatest treasure that you can ever lay hold of. There is nothing, absolutely nothing in this life that even compares to the treasure, the joy of following Jesus. So Peter here, like Isaiah, shows us what it means to recognize Jesus. He shows us what it means to repent before Jesus. He shows us what it means to be rescued by Jesus. He shows us what it means to receive grace from Jesus. Jesus has demonstrated his authority and his power through the Holy Spirit to catch fish. But even more than that, Jesus has demonstrated his power through the Holy Spirit to catch men. And if you are here as a Christian this morning, you are evidence that Jesus still has that authority. Jesus still has that authority and Jesus is still exercising that authority and that power through you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that, that equipped and empowered Jesus for his ministry is at work in you. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You have the Holy Spirit enabling you to do what you would never be able to do on your own, to stand against opposition, to stand against fear, to stand against your flesh, and to serve Jesus, to follow Jesus, to become fishers of men. Yes, we saw a miraculous catch. That miraculous catch of fish was a miracle, but the greatest miracle that we saw on that day is the same miracle that you and I have experienced. The regeneration that we've received through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our glorious Savior and Redeemer, we praise you for you are the eternal, almighty God. Lord Jesus, 
You are eternally God the Son, equal in power and authority with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Yet, Lord Jesus, you condescended to take on human flesh and dwell amongst the people who were full of sin, to save a people who were full of sin. People like Isaiah, people like Peter and James and John, people like us. Lord, we pray that you would use us as those who have been called by your grace and who live by your grace for your glory will be faithful to proclaim the gospel, trusting that just as the gospel saved us through the power of your Holy Spirit, the gospel is also able to save others through the power of your Holy Spirit. Use us, we pray, as your servants, as your disciples, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, becoming fishers of men. For we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.